That's just an institution of learning, ladies and gentlemen. If you can't control it, how can you teach? Welcome to Culture Score, ladies and gentlemen, the most exciting and informative podcast you listen to as it pertains to culture and film and television in the entertainment industry. Culture Score reviews film and TV shows through a lens at the intersection of black culture and popular culture. My name is Ben Tubo, and I am Marcus Moore. And we have part three of a very, very, very special guest that we've promised you guys for four weeks now in the person of Dr. James L. Moore. Welcome, Dr. James. Hi, how you doing? It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you, man. Glad to have you. We're looking forward to having this deep conversation with you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it, and it's been long. It's taken so long before you all invited me to your <laughs> wonderful show. Well, thank God you don't charge interest because <laughs> we're, we're broke. <laughs> well, he may not be charging everybody interest. I might have. A, I may get a bill that's sitting in the mail in a little bit. So who knows? You never know. Hey. As long as he's you, man, not me. <laughs> so um, today we're doing something called Flashback. I think we've talked about it in the past, but this is the first time we're doing it. This is Marcus's idea, Marcus's term that he coined. Um, I hope he trademark, trademarks it because it's probably going to take off. But um, like Marcus has talked about in the past, you know, Flashback, as a reference to something that we, we've gotten feedback and we thought it's important for us to do, where we take a film that's historically very relevant to black culture and like what we've done in the past, we try to have a conversation around it, right? So, well, before, oh, but wait a minute, Ben, before you jump in, real quick, let me th- just throw something out before you start doing, because um, I know you're going to kind of give a little intro to our guests. I just want to throw out the reason why we decided to do this flashback, black is what we're calling it we wanted to really pay homage to a lot of the great black cinema that's out there that's had so much cultural uh, relevance in the black community. And so today we're going to be jumping into one that I'll I'll let Ben have his his thunder back. But it was just something really important that even though we have typically only focused on new films, we wanted to really just, like I said, pay homage to those, those films that it's just so relevant to the black culture. And believe it or not, because some of these movies that we're going to discuss, they might be 10, 20, 30, 40 years old, and there's a whole new audience who's never seen them. So we wanted to inspire you to take a look at them again. And hey, maybe we'll jog your memory and make you realize or remember you know, a, a first date seeing these movies or sitting around the table or the couch uh, with some blankets on the floor watching these films with your family as you were growing up. So um, once a month, we're going to hit you with a flash black. It's going to be a, a oldie but goodie, and we'll just talk about why it's so important and hopefully why it's still relevant today. So just wanted to throw that in, being sorry for interrupting, but uh, I'll, I'll give it back to you. You might as well just sing the song, man. Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow. Well, you know why I don't sing, because... I would never make a dollar. <laughs> but <laughs> the movie we're doing today is Lean On Me. Um, classic, classic movie. Um, screenplay, Michael Schiffer. Directed by John G. Avildsen. It's brought to you by Warner Brothers and the leads. I mean, we can talk about everybody, but really, this is a Morgan Freeman show, right? This is... I mean, I, I gotta, I'm, I'm supposed to do the intro on the bio, but one of the things that I just got to say, it's 
that dude's been old since he was two, and he hasn't aged since he was two. I don't know how he did. <laughs> 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 he looks the It's that nice Mississippi sun. That's what it is. It's that Mississippi sun uh, that he's from. Yeah, I guess. But um, I'll do a quick bio of a guest, very accomplished guest, that before you're done listening to this episode 21, you're going to know why he is the, the guest. And the reason, the person that absolutely had to be the last guest for season one to bless it up. This is the last episode, too. I'm saying a little bit too much. But I guess today is Dr. James L. Moore. He's the vice provost and chief diversity officer at the Ohio State, the Ohio State University. He's the first executive director of the Todd Anthony Bell National Resource Center on the African-American Males on African-American Male Studies, I think, a distinguished professor of urban education in the College of Urban Education and Human Ecology. Dr. Moore is internationally recognized for his work on African-American males. I think I've messed that up, but it's okay because it's really dense. I'm trying to get this thing down to like half a page, but it's like 10 pages, so you guys got to work with me here. And his research agenda focuses on school counseling, gifted education, urban education, higher education, multicultural education, slash counseling, and STEM education. He has co-edited five books. He has over 150 publications, 150, obtained over 28 million in grants, 28 million in grants and given over 200 scholarly presentations and lectures across the world, like the real world, not the United States world, including France, Brazil, (laughs) Ethiopia, (laughs) Bermuda, Bahamas, Canada, England, Spain, Indonesia, just to name a few. He's a husband, he's a dad, he's a brother. Uh, We got to underline italicize and put the brother in red. You're going to find out soon. And his work in education is a book, like I mentioned, not a bio. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome Dr. James L. Moore to the show, officially. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure to be here. And like I said, um, I've been waiting for this moment to engage you all and as well as your fabulous audience. Oh, man. Thank you for being here. I'm going to, this is the first time I'm going to add to the bio. And I got to just add one thing to his name. He's not just Dr. James Elmore. He's Dr. James Elmore III because his son is the fourth, uh, who's my first nephew. This is my beloved brother who has many, many times slammed me and played Ric Flair with me and put me in figure fours and let me be a tackle dummy with no helmet and no pads uh, just so I could get tough. And uh, there may be no person on this earth who has had more influence in my life, probably beside, maybe besides my mom than my, my big brother, who I'm extremely proud of and has done amazing things his entire career. And uh, I am beyond ecstatic to have him here. But the only thing I'm worried about is I may have not one person ribbing me the whole show. I may have two people getting to do it. So, um, but looking forward to it. So glad he decided to join us. Um, just done so many great things, as, as Ben just mentioned. 
um, we have been talking about doing something together. And it's really rare that my world and his world gets to kind of coexist. So to have uh, Big Brother, or as the world knows him, Dr. James Elmore III, be a part of Culture Score is my honor and privilege. So really ecstatic about it. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad he's on the show. Look forward to him uh, bestowing us with his knowledge. I hear it all the time. So it's nice that everybody else is going to get to kind of share in it. And uh, yeah, just really excited. This is probably the most exciting episode for me just because it's a family affair for me. So really excited to have him on. Um, so yeah, so should I just jump right into the synopsis so we can get it going, Ben? Or is there anything you want to add before I do? Should I start ribbing you now or wait? Let's let's just hold off. You got all episode. Don't don't okay. jump. You're, you're a little too excited to get right into that. Uh, so as Ben has uh, stated, we are going to do one of my absolute favorite, most inspirational films ever. I think it's one of your favorite films too, uh, Ben. Is Lean on Me. Um, this is one of the movies, one of the first movies that I think Morgan Freeman just put his name on the map. This is a story about a school that was a phenomenal school. I think it was in Patterson, New Jersey. Um, It was a great school in the 60s and the 70s. And then after some changes and some uh, redistricting of the school system and the the town, the school hit really hard times in the 80s and just became gang infested. And then here comes Principal Joe Clark, who says, hey, you can call him crazy or you can call me Batman. But he's turned around that school and... It's just a very inspirational story. I think it is what Rudy is, the movie Rudy is to sports. This is, this is the same thing in the education system, just really inspirational. Um, and we thought, since we're talking about education, who better than to have my brother, who's one of the most well-known, probably scholars, but definitely black scholars on the planet. And so I was just really happy to try to bring that here and, and kind of pick his brain about some of the issues that Ben and I were discussing. And so with all that being said, Ben, I'm going to throw it to you to get it started off. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I'd love to start it off, but as, and as much as I like to give you crap, Marcus, I mean, the recognition for your brother and just the respect and candor in your voice, man, if I had any tears left, well, I probably <laughs> don't want to waste them on you, but I'd give you a little. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> it's... You know, it's you know, it's 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 just heartwarming, right? To to see that respect and brotherliness and togetherness and uh, I mean, what else can I say? But you know, you know, with that said, I'm Dr. J. Oh, Dr. J, that sounds terrific, huh? <laughs> I'll just call him that, Dr. J. So this movie, <laughs> this movie takes place in the 1980s, right, and shows how the educational system is failing the students. And so we continue to have these conversations around education. And I know you've done a whole lot in this space from scholarships to teaching to diversity and inclusion to leading foundations. In, in your opinion, you know, what has changed since that time from the 80s and what you saw to the movie in the movie in the educational system in the U.S. for better or for worse? Well, thank you for asking that question because it's a very important um, topic that I've devoted a tremendous part of my life to, you know, fundamentally, access to a quality education is the foundation of a democratic society. It's also the characteristic of a productive nation. But unfortunately, too many of our young people are not being able to 
access to education uh, at a very high level that is afforded to them. We know that, you know, when you look across the nation, you see a distressing reality that too many Americans are not benefiting from our U.S. public educational system. And sometimes I think to myself, a, a closer examination of the system as a whole reveals some very distressing findings. When you're black and brown and poor, too often you're not able to access the educational system in the same way that many of their counterparts can. Too often, when you look at our school systems, in particular, when we look at various contexts, uh, particularly the urban context, uh, too many of our young people go to schools that are under-resourced and not uh, afforded the same kind of educational experiences that you often find in suburbia or in affluent uh, private schools. There are huge disparities in education that comes across that we see within groups and between groups. Um, so I would say to you, uh, that movie, uh, although there was some fictional pieces to it, but it certainly illuminates many of the things that we see in many of our urban centers across the United States of America. You know, even when kids are taking advanced placement or taking uh, advanced curricula, we often find that their curriculum uh, is not on par with affluent uh, school communities. You know, quite fundamentally, I call that educational malpractice. <laughs> uh, when a young person thinks that they're getting the same quality education as their counterparts, and they realize when they matriculate at institutions like The Ohio State University, that when they take in calculus, they realize that the calculus that they're taking, oftentimes their counterparts had that same calculus book in high school. You know, uh, it, it affects you emotionally, psychologically, uh, because and oftentimes in these communities, these students took everything that they had uh, available to them. And unfortunately, too often, it's not enough. But in America, in a meritocracy kind of society, uh, we hold people responsible for the zip codes in which they were born and raised in. And we, you know, and at the end of the day, they have to be able to perform at the same level as sometimes their counterparts who have been given immense advantages. Advantages that, you know, that other families weren't able to give to their children. So I, I, I think that movie although it was entertainment, but it was also very distressing because in some communities in America, they say um, those schools in Newark, New Jersey, where the setting was, is that uh, they mimic schools in Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C., in Detroit, New Orleans, all across America. But unfortunately, it's very hard to engage our democracy at a very high level if we don't ensure that our young people afforded a quality education.
So I'm glad that you all are having a discussion on this very important topic because it's a topic that I hope it raised the awareness of, how, of the severity of some of the educational situations that so many of our young people find themselves in. Wow, that's, yeah. wow. Well, let me tell you, I mean, I've, I've listened to my brother. I've, I've heard a lot of his talks. Um, you know, we were in graduate school together when he was doing his uh, PhD and I was doing my master's when we were at Virginia Tech. This has been a passion of his for as long as I can remember. Um, our mother was just, education was so paramount to her and we didn't come up in an urban environment. We came up from a rural environment. And I think so often in America, we only talk about the challenges of people from urban areas because it is glitzy to say, oh, well, these kids came from South Central, from Harlem, from, you know, South Side, Chicago. But the education system fails people in rural areas too. And, and I think for us um, and my siblings, like education was our key to being able to explore and see the world and, and better ourselves. And I can honestly say that amongst myself, and I'm a middle child between my siblings and I, none of us has traveled the globe as much as, as my brother has. And I think just hearing what he says, it, it lets you realize that even though that was so much fiction, it was you know done for entertainment purpose, and I'm sure they embellished uh, quite a bit to, to make the movie lean on me. There's a very real truth there, uh, you know, to, to you both, that it's still happening today. And even if it's not gang violence and everyone isn't putting graffiti on the lockers and things of that nature anymore, the challenge just stays the same. And, and it's really sad that we're, we're the richest nation on the planet and we're still leaving behind so many people an opportunity to help take care of them, their families and to instill a sense of pride. Because I do believe as, as you become more educated, you become more aware. And through that awareness, you recognize the opportunities that are put forth um, in front of you. But if you don't have that educational foundation, I feel like you can basically spend a lifetime being lost at sea. So that's my, that's my viewpoint on, on not only the question, but also on, on what you know, Dr. James has just stated. So uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts, Ben? My thought is I have a question for Dr. James. You touched on it, Marcus. So you, you brought it in nicely for me, but when he was talking about education being foundational to a, a democratic system and, and seeing how democracy is being attacked from all directions, and I think for most people who are intellectual and who sit back and analyze what's going on and try to find the root cause of where some of these issues are coming from, the question is, like, Dr. James, do you feel like it's intentional sabotage where we're, they're holding back education and they're not democratizing education because they want to hold power and kind of make democracy less potent than what it can be? Well, I, what I will say, and, 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 and thank you for helping me theorize here, and there's some evidence to suggest this, is that one of the things when you think about vulnerable, I don't refer to young people as being at risk. I, I use the term educational vulnerable. And I say that term because uh, we don't adapt to kids. We want kids to adapt to school systems. Um, so many of our kids come to school every day uh, with gaps in their learning. 
and they're experiencing things in their communities, in their homes that are unparalleled with other kids. We know that hamper uh, their ability to perform optimally. And I, want, I don't want to disregard the, the tenacity and real resiliency that so many young people bring to bear in their life experiences. But it's not without uh, psychological and emotional consequences. And even sometimes the effects of being in an environment where you're not fully developed and fully nurtured, sometimes we don't see the effects sometimes until later life in, in a person's life. So what, what you, your question, I want to be more specific. Unfortunately, there are many enterprises that benefit from poor educational systems. There's a whole enterprise built around it, around misery, around failure, right? We have a whole governmental system that a lot of people who live in affluent communities benefit from. <laughs> and these are fundamental things. And so you probably say, well, what am I talking about? Contracts? We're talking about busing systems? We're talking about all these reform um, products that people utilize? Uh, all of these things, all these things play a critical role in uh, the kinds of things that we see in America that sometimes we take for granted. You know, who's getting these contracts? It ain't probably the, uh, the kids' uh, families getting, uh, you know, employment opportunities where they can, you know, make ends meet. Um, you know, when we think about our... U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we use proxies to get at income, what we call free and reduced lunch, right? Yeah. That's an agriculture program, right? Um, it's like, you remember the government cheese that people used to talk about and rant and rave about? Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest subsidies in America uh, is farmers, right? Um, why do we need you know, a, a big five-pound thing of cheese. And, and so we don't never unpack how products come to being, right? And so we see these kinds of things in the school system, unfortunately. You know, a school-to-prison pipeline, we can almost predict with 90% accuracy without ever going into school. These are predictive models that colleagues a mind developed, and we can predict as early as third grade whether or not a kid is going to graduate from high school Oof. with three variables. I don't even have to see the school. With three variables, we can predict with almost 90% accuracy. If the kid has been retained at least once, the more, you, more times that a kid has been retained from moving to the next grade, you lessen the likelihood that the kid will graduate from high school. And the paradox of it is, you know, why would you want to promote a kid that might not be mastering the, the minimum uh, standards to go to the next grade? 
but you lessen the probability that the kid will be able to graduate. So that's one. The second variable is reading below at least one grade below a grade level. Something like 80, 80 plus percent of the people who incarcerate, incarcerated, excuse me, read at least one grade below a grade level, right? Uh, rating is still a predictor <laughs> for incarceration. And then the third one, and I'm sorry, I said three variables, four variables, but the third variable is attend a school that's high, free, and reduced lunch, so a low-income school, a school that with meager resources. And then four, a school that is high minority. Unfortunately in America, when we say um, high and free and reduced lunch, they typically be, are high minority schools. With those four variables, we can predict with almost 90% accuracy that those kids won't graduate from high school. Wow. Those... And, and, some, and when we talk about public policy, we give up on kids as early as third grade and um, some states use that data to determine how many prisons they're going to build. <laughs> wow. Right. That's, that's, I mean, those, wow. Those statistics are so daunting. And we, I don't think we've really used this word a lot on the show. We may have danced around it. But it starts sounding like there's a lot of isms and, and let's just be clear, racism that may play a part in it. Um, in this in this film that we're that we're kind of discussing and kind of branching off from, Principal Joe Clark is the central figure. With you, Dr. Moore, being a African American male teacher, uh, a professor, but but teacher for you know using that term you know kind of broadly. I'm just curious because you just named all the things that basically minority kids, black and brown specifically, I'm sure Native American as well, all the things they have to face. How much or how important is it for these minority, uh, for us to have minority teachers? And in, are we doing enough as a nation or with our education system to acquire more minority teachers and to retain them? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, one thing I can say, uh, Russia launched to go to space um, before America. And in the 50s, we're talking about the Sputnik. And um, they beat us to the punch. And you got to think, what was the state of America? I mean, we were always, we were always sleep with one eye open when we thought about the former Soviet Union, right? And because we had tried to, to get to space and we had failed, and Russia beat us to the punch in the 50s, education, the educational crisis or the mandate or clarion call, we didn't have a U.S. Department of Education then. It became a Department of Defense endeavor. So they created what they call the Defense Act and to put, to hire more school counselors to invest in mathematics and science. And so what I want to say, and I don't want to give you a history lesson about it, but at the core of it is when America decides it wants to achieve something, 
They spare no expense. It becomes the mission, a, a critical mission. I'm not sure whether or not as a society we have the will to right the wrongs in our educational system, to ensure that the most vulnerable of our society <coughs> excuse me, is afforded an opportunity to be able to engage our democracy at a very high level. It's very difficult to engage our democracy if you're not afforded a quality education. And one thing I can say about my education, it changed the hands I shake, the people I meet, and the places I've been. As my brother indicated before, I've been all around the world. And that is directly related to the education that I was afforded. And so, so many, I get to watch, unfortunately, sadly, I've, had a, I, I've looked, been in some of the most vulnerable school systems in America, particularly in the state of Ohio. And you realize that the school systems in many of these places don't represent a sense of hope. It doesn't outline a pathway, a future for so many of these young people. In fact, these school systems mimic the conditions in which they live in every day. And so when, I, when you talk about how serious this is, you know, it, this is a serious matter. See, when you compare, you know, um, Marcus knows that I do a lot of research specifically on African-American males, black males. And when you compare in this country, since we've been uh, collecting this data for nearly a century, African-American women are the only group of women, when you compare their counterparts within groups, to matriculate at a higher rate than their, matriculate at a higher rate in higher education than their African-American male counterparts. For nearly a century, the men have never passed the women. Now hear me out. When you compare white women with their white male counterparts, white women pass white men in the mid-80s. So when you look within groups, women are matriculating in higher education within groups and between groups higher than the men. I predict in the probably the next 10 to 15 years, the new affirmative action will be men. Increasingly across America, when you uh, analyze uh, the, the higher education data at large public or flagship universities, increasingly it's hard to find black men at these institutions. At some of our large public flagship universities, you have less than 500 black men in the school. Now, let me talk about this that a lot of people don't talk about, is that thank goodness that we got historically black colleges and universities, because I really think these institutions, when I think about other emerging democratic societies, and what is the difference, is that they don't have historically black colleges and universities. As Marcus knows, I go to Brazil every, every year. I didn't go this past year, but due to uh, COVID-19. 
and I go to Bahia. And Bahia is what a lot of people don't know is more Africans in Brazil than any other place outside of the continent of Africa. And it's, uh, and it's like in West Africa, it's like you see your Nigerian brothers all in Brazil. And out of that, you say, well, why haven't black folks in Brazil been able to make the kind of strides like other enslaved Africans in other parts of the world? And, and one of the things people don't talk about, I, I really believe some of my natural, um, national treasures are HBCUs. Uh, because these kind of institutions are non-existent um, in most countries. And think about this. When you look at HBCUs compared, and I know I'm going a little bit everywhere, but you're talking about education because you really can't talk about these things without truly understanding um, the, about the continuum of education. Almost like at every point of the education continuum, I think you can witness a large number of students who are academically underprepared or unprepared. And some of it has nothing to do with the institutions. And so many of our HBCUs take some of the most vulnerable students from our most, some of the most vulnerable school systems in America, and they meet students where they are rather than say, you should be here. And so they have to. Uh, fill in the gaps, if you will. And out of those great institutions, why I call them a national treasures, uh, those institutions produce the most teachers, black teachers, the most black lawyers, the most black um, physicians, the most black uh, pharmacists. And they only educate about 18 to 20 percent of black America. So in this country, you asked me the question about black teachers and why they're so important and why uh, my colleagues and I around the country, we put tremendous emphasis. Um, <clears throat> we know when a student, it, we call it matching, you know, um, when black students have a black teacher, they're more likely to be admitted in gifted education or advanced curriculum than they are when they have a white teacher. I'm not trying to suggest that all the white teachers are racist, but I, I do say one thing. Uh, there's insight that individuals have when they're part of the group versus when they're not a part of the group. Oftentimes when you're not, when you're part of the group, you see potential differently than the person, than the group, right? Who's not a part of the group, right? Wow. Uh, I mean, seeing, hearing that. Oh, go ahead, Ben, because I want to. I want you to. Speak no, I just I, said that last last line right there. Um, it resonates, right? Because it, it's very in, in a very human way. You see yourself in other people differently when you feel like they're part of you, right? And you understand background. You understand you know, the unspoken set of circumstances that somebody may have lived through, if you've lived through that. And so because of that, you can relate to them, you can empathize, you can sympathize. And there are all these other things that provide you an ability to learn, right? Because we all know that learning 
it's not always easy. Like going through school is not always easy. And every now and then you need like some level of understanding and some level of support. So if you can get that from an institution, I didn't go to an HBCU, but if I didn't know anything about it, I know Marcus does and not. <laughs> I get <laughs> I get the HUs all the time, right? But I think it's a very critical, very critical. I, I mean, there's so many things that I've kind of written down as Dr. James was, you know, was talking through um, these points, Marcus. I know you have a question, but it's something I want. No, no, to, go ahead, go for it. I want, I want, I want to drill into something that Dr. James. A couple of things now that he said. You know, one of it is education being foundational to a democratic system, and also how um, the capitalistic system in America almost creates this inefficiencies because the system benefits from the gaps and the different levels of you know, the institutions that we have for education. But what, what, what really got to me as I was listening to him talk is that you think about democracy and capitalism. I mean, if those two things don't define America in the eyes of the world, you know, what does, right? And if you, you put those two and you say foundationally education from a labor standpoint and really what drives capitalism is that's how you get skilled labor. That's how you get a middle class. That's how you get um, disposable income enough for you to drive the economy with and all of these things. So I can't tie in. And Dr. James, I don't know if there's a, there's, there's a simple way to tie these things in. But as we were talking, I was just analyzing these thoughts in my mind. Why isn't education meritocratic? Like, why don't we create a simple, efficient system that allows more fine labor to come through, more information to come through, more educated people to come through. Like, why is that, why does it seem like it's being kind of stagnated and not supported in a way that supports the two core aspects of what the American society and the American brand is about, which is democracy and capitalism? Well, I, I think this has been the, the, the tension since the beginning of our time, you know? Um, you know, we tried to democratize education. Education, we had one of the strongest educational systems in the world. We still, to this, even to this day, we have the strongest higher education system in the world, even though many countries are now closing the gap. Like, you know, China, you see different countries in, 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 in Africa. They, you know, I, I can see in Ethiopia, uh, before the Civil War, I think they had like, three universities, and now they have about 28 universities, because all the countries realize in order for their democracy to, to advance, education is going to play a, play a pivotal role in it. Um, but let, let me just say this, though. Um, you know, fundamentally, and, you know, in our educational system, um, the the elite, there's an elite, there's a small percentage of group, as we know, who own most of the wealth, and, if, and they also shape public policy. Corporate America huh, shapes public policy in our democracy, and we don't want to talk about it. Uh, that's why we have so many lobbying companies uh, that work for corporate America that will push uh, endeavors that's in the best interest of those companies. 
not in the best interest of our country. You know, one of the things that's problematic for me as being a person who do social science research is that um, 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 is that too many people compare apples with oranges. And they'll talk about how horrible our educational system. But fundamentally, we're one of the few countries. It's not a lot. I mean, I'm not saying there are others. We do provide an education, but we don't always provide a quality education. In some countries, when you think about in Asia, in certain places in Africa, and other places in the world, is that when you look at the people who take the test, um, these usually are the elite of those societies, right? And we're comparing students that everybody take the test with oftentimes the most elite and affluent individuals of other countries. And what does that mean when you talk about it? It gives corporate America an excuse why they need to go overseas for cheaper labor. <laughs> that they don't have to hire some of the people that we have because they say we don't have the skills. So, so in other words, there, you know, you got to see James read James Rosenbaum's work at Northwest, and he talks about this. Think about it. If we're really looking for skilled individuals, it's not like people ask for people's transcripts when when they're looking for a job. I mean, you both work for a pretty two major companies that are, you know, very pivotal in our society. I won't say their names, but think about how many times you all done asked for a transcript and and and, and analyze their actual grades in the courses that they took. In fact, you can get a pass if you go to certain schools and you might not even you might say you're looking at somebody with, you know, can do algorithms and they have this mathematics or they do data science. And because they go to certain schools, you might not even have a look at their transcript. They might not even have a degree that they say even data analytics. But you give them a pass because they went to school X. And school X has the brand. And because they have the brand, you automatically draw inference. They're smart and they can capable. So, so I think in America, we need to really decide what kind of society we want our country to be and what kind of role model, what kind of democracy we want for the future, right? And these are hard questions. You know, at the end of the day, when we think about our educational system, most people are not going to, I won't say they don't care. But they're not going to even make the kind of investment and hold the system to the fire unless it's going to affect the people who they care about. That's so true. I mean, kind of looping in what you said to, to the film, and I got to tell everyone who's listening, this has felt way more like a, a lesson that we are not usually privy to. All you see on the news is, oh, the education system is, is broken and 
um, you know, you know, it's not doing well, and America has slipped to this score in the national average, in the world average in math, and you know, and, and literacy rating, and you don't really get to understand the why. And I think when you look at a film like Lean on Me, and even though we 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 talk about just how some of the things are obviously embellished, it does show you that there are really fine teachers out there doing the absolute best they can when all the odds are stacked against them. And so Dr. Moore, you know, and it seems so weird calling my brother Dr. Moore. I mean, I know that's what he's called, but in my mind, he's, he's James. But um, in your opinion, with all the things that we've discussed and all the things that you've, you've just so uh, enlightened for us, is the education, education system getting better or worse? And I, and I ask this specifically and particularly for students in underrepresented groups. Do you feel like as a whole, that we're moving a needle at all, or are we are we just basically consistently putting a band aid on on a million wounds? Like, do you think it's getting better overall for especially for these underrepresented groups um, in America right now? Well, I would say it's, we're stagnant. I, I wouldn't say that we see exponential uh, transformation of the lives of individuals um, who are black and brown and poor or even white and poor. We, we don't see exponential change, it's stagnation. But what I will say that um, uh, when you uh, examine the distressing data across the enterprise, uh, across the nation, if you will, uh, I would say we see increases in the South compared to other places uh, but they they started so they started so uh, low that you can't really see the benefit. You know what I mean? Compared to the Midwest, I mean we got some distressing concerns in the state of Ohio. Uh, when you look at ACT scores, the average ACT score in the state of Ohio is about twenty. And it's even less for a black student. And see, also I want the listeners to understand some of the challenges I'm talking about, I'm talking about urban America, even though I didn't grow up in America, but I, it's been a laboratory for my life, right, because of proximity of Ohio State to so many urban centers across the state. But I want people to know I do a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well known in the gifted education space. And let me just tell you, um, we can, black students who come from affluent communities do better than the poor students. But they don't, there's a big gap when you compare them with their counterparts, right? So I want to say this again, you know, uh, you, you can get, your parents may have a PhD, JD, or went to Yale or got that degree in the mail. We still see gaps <laughs> between groups, right? We know that the wider the school is, the better the black students tend to do, but it ain't without psychological and emotional consequences. Now, hear me out. I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying you got to be near a white body to perform optimally, but usually there's a correlation with whiteness, resources. Think about what I just said. In the state of Ohio, 
it's went to the Supreme Court twice how we fund public school. And the state has yet to right the wrong, wrongs of how we fund public school. I mean, it went to the Supreme Court twice, the Ohio Supreme Court twice, and we have yet to fix the situation. And Ohio's not a big state. I mean, if it's like that in Ohio, imagine what it's like in a state like California or New York or Florida or just as a whole in the country. Because that's just a microcosm of what the rest of the country is. And, and not to get too political and get into past administrations, but you see this desire to move public funding into private schools, which in my mind, and, and I, don't, I don't have the expertise that you do, but it does seem that that would only prolong and widen the gap if now public funds could be taken away from public schools and now it could be allocated to private schools, which for the lack of, you know, we all know are not suffering in funding. So, I mean, I, yeah, it just, it doesn't leave a lot to be um, encouraged about when it just seems like our education system is just being run basically by corporate America or by self-serving political interests, which is like, hey, well, my kid can afford to go to this private school. Why do I have to pay money to these public schools that my kids don't go to where, we've all, where they're struggling? And it's, it just seems like we're in a loop. I think you raised some good questions. And, you know, uh, Wisconsin is sort of like the state that kind of led the charge around charter schools. Um, and there's a proliferation of charter schools that came in, and they mean different things in other schools. So I don't want to demonize charter schools, but, but at the core, you know, what, how they settled in, 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 in Wisconsin, uh, they started vouchers. And you're, you can get a voucher, and the voucher is transferable to even private schools. See, that's really what, that, that's what the elite would like for things to go. They say, this is my, listen, I don't, I, I'm a former student athlete, and I did sports, team sports for a long time in my life, in elementary all the way to college. And in fact, that's how uh, I was able to go to college playing sports. But one of the things I, I like to say, I don't like this, this, this fallacy that uh, we're going to improve our schools by having competition. I'm okay with competition, but I want the rules to be the same. For the people who do start charter schools, I want the rules to be the same for the public school. In some states, the rules aren't the same. They let the charter schools do innovative kinds of things, and they hold the public schools back to the same rudimentary kinds of ways of how they're going to evaluate them, the kinds of uh, flexibility that they have in terms of how to improve educational outcomes. See, I got into urban education, and some people try to use urban, use black and brown as code words, but really, to understand <laughs> urban education, you can be a white person, uh, in our case, in Ohio, we have certain parts of the district where you find lots of whites who come from Appalachia. Uh, and, you know, that, that's a whole nother story, and you can follow that. But the reality of it is, is that urban education is a consequence, if you will, of the urban ecosystem. And you have to understand the urban ecosystem, and, I, you know, you can look at it. So, in other words, 
you find in some school districts that the mobility rates are very high. And what the mobility rates mean is that kids leave from and go to school to school. And some people, you know, I do a lot of consulting with large school districts across the country and sit on a lot of advisory boards. And I ask some of the master teachers, why do you think um, kids go from schools to school? Why do you see these patterns in some of uh, our most vulnerable, large, comprehensive urban school districts? Well, some people, I just gave a talk, not last week, actually, and they were able to answer the question. I had never been. Uh, in a setting where so many people were able to get the answer correct without me telling them. Well, the reality of it is why kids move from school to school, they're not moving school to school because they want a better school. They're moving from school to school because they're looking for housing because they were evicted or they're looking. So if you don't understand the urban ecosystem, but let me just tell you how foolish Ben and Marcus that mm -hmm. our leaders are. Our public policy stinks at times. So you remember I said, started my conversation at the beginning, and I say this quite frequently. We need school systems that adapt to the kids rather than school systems expecting the kids to adapt to the schools. So we already yeah. know that certain, you know, there's some anthropological implications, right? <laughs> it's just like the nomadic. You know, if you know a nomadic culture, they're nomadic for a reason, right? And they're adapted to the <laughs> yeah. natural patterns of the universe, right? That's true in an urban context. When you look at the urban ecosystem, people become adaptive to the conditions that they're confronted on a day-to-day -day basis, right? But this is what our schools do. They'll create schools that don't have continuity. So in other words, you leave from one school and go to another school and just the nature of how they are designed within the same school system, whether it's unintended or unconscious, oftentimes kids are negatively impacted because they may create schools that kids inherently have gaps in their learning because the way the curriculum is, or way the schedule is. They could be on a four-by-four four schedule, if we're talking about high school, and then they could be on a seven-period school period. And depending on if you come from one to another, the school system, by its design, can create a school system that further disadvantages our young people. See, oftentimes our schools are designed not for kids, the design for the people who work in them. <laughs> Man, this is, this is, I, right. I, I, I got to just throw this. Every episode we've ever done, we've always really used our guests to really kind of launch into the conversation that is the film or the TV show that we're going to do. I think I can honestly say that this is one of those times that when we thought of this film, we thought about how much it was important to us and how much we loved it and how much the black culture loves it. But this conversation is really an education. Like, this is not us just to talk about something cinema. This is like we're bringing you a PBS special through your podcast because this afflicts, and I think that's an appropriate word to use, there's so many hardworking parents, 
uh, out there, especially that are, are of color. And they don't understand that they've already been put behind this eight ball. And they're like, well, why can't I get my kid where they need to be in the school? The system has been designed for you to be frustrated and for your child to fail. And we basically are using this talk with Dr. Moore, who is my beloved brother, to really highlight um, what's really happening. And we use the film to basically bait you in. Because no matter how many things that we try to accomplish in this world, if we don't have education system for these underrepresented groups, there is one pipeline. They are on a conveyor belt, typically, to the morgue or to prison. And in my humble opinion, and, and, and my brother didn't say this, but I feel based upon the words that he shared with us today, that it is a concerted effort for that to be the path in which so many go to. Because if you don't have education, you're not shaking anybody's hands. You're not getting any jobs. You're not getting any mortgages. Because you're going to be so left behind that we already see this all the time, that what was necessary back in the day to get a job was a high school diploma. You can't get almost any job nowadays without a college degree. So if you're reading many, many levels behind where you should, how many options are for you? And we all know, no matter what race and what face you have, if you can't eat because you can't get a job, you end up taking some desperate measures to put food on your table. And those desperate measures usually include crime and corruption. And I, I don't have the degrees, the education, the training, or the resume, or as in his world, the, the curriculum vita that my brother does. But I hope people are, who are listening to this recognize, and when you get ready to vote, when it's time to vote, you look more intently into the education system. Because if you want crime to go down in your city, look and see how your the education system is doing. If you want property values to go up in your community, look and see how the education system is failing um, your, your, your community. I, I can guarantee you there's a correlation each and every time with those factors. So, Ben, I'm going to throw it to you because I know I've, I kind of gave you my little soapbox there. Um, I'll no, throw it to you in case you have anything. Dude, you I don't with. even, it's, it's, I don't know how to describe it. Like, it's, it's almost, it's like being undressed in public, right? You, all these things you think you know and all these things you have in your head, and then all of a sudden you get this big, you know, download of just information and different and connection points of data points that, you know, you otherwise would have isolated, right? So I'm just, I'm, I'm just sitting here taking notes, but I still have a question for Dr. Moore, Dr. J. And it's really around, how do you feel? What can we do as people, as individuals, right? What can we do to help? How do we feel positivity and momentum around doing little things to help? I think that's a great question because I never want the audience to leave here and say, it's a, um, a futile uh, endeavor that we, we shouldn't even think about what are, what are the possibilities that we should pursue. Well, first of all, I want you to remember five things. Five things that shape individuals' educationally and career aspirations. One is interest. My first thing I always talk about, and I talk about this, and this is what my research 
It's hard to be interested in something if you've never been exposed to it. Too many people are foreclosing Church. on opportunities because they've never been exposed. They said, you can be a great astro astrophysicist. I don't know what an astrophysicist is. I don't want to do that. I want to be a football player, right? Most people, they gravitate to things that they see and touch on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's important that we expand, expand our young people's horizons. Based on the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, there are over 12,000 jobs, and many of the jobs that are in existence today, they probably won't be around in the next four years. How do we get our young people interested in jobs that put them in the new frontier? And that's what we see in the STEM area. I don't want to just get young people into STEM. I want to get them into the new frontier of STEM. Because if we just get them at the entry level of STEM, we'll create another disparity. That's what sociology has taught us. That's what anthropology and psychology have taught us. The second thing is preparation, preparation, preparation. At every level of the continuum, there needs to be some degree of preparation. There's the classroom, formal and informal. There's emotional intelligence, you know, soft skills, power skills, as well as hard skills. We need to make sure that individuals are prepared. As I would say, there's utility in practice. I know Iverson, he said, practice, man, practice, man. But I believe <laughs> that's utility in practice, right? You get better. It's not about me saying I'm better than you. And I like to think that's been my strength. That I am on a day-to-day -day basis surrounded with the smart, some of the smartest people in the world. But I can hold my own. And in fact, uh, at the end of the day, I realize intelligence without this other stuff is probably not going to lead to immense outcomes. So what I try to share with my students and the work that I do that I'm very proud of, and I'm going to share a little bit about it if I have a few minutes. So the first one is interest, preparation, and another one is experiences. It's important that students have experiences indicative of the trajectory that they have for themselves. And sometimes they don't know what the trajectory is. That's why it's important to be exposed to high-quality teachers. Because teachers, academic achievement is highly correlated with the number of contact hours that a student has with his or her teacher. It's also highly correlated with the relationship that a student has with his teacher. And some students, they think they're hurting their teacher when they don't like their teacher by not doing their work. So relationships are really critical uh, in, the, in, in terms of helping young people reach their full capacity. So interest, preparation, experiences. The fourth thing, connection. Connections. That goes back to what I just said about the relationship between teachers and students, relationships between their parents, relationships with their co connections. If you think about concentric circles, let's think about a boomerang. And being you in the middle, but I'm in the outer ring. And I'll forever stay in that outer ring when you think about concentric circles. But because of being you, you reached out to me. So now I have a access 
not permanent access, but I only have access through you. And so I'd be able to enhance my social and cultural capital because I am able to touch your garment. So interest, preparation, experiences, connections, and the last one, opportunities. My interest, preparation, connections, and experiences determine in large measure whether or not I'm even going to be able to access the opportunities that are afforded to me. You got programs that conglomerates have created for the Los Angeles public schools, I'm sure, and they can't understand why they can't get anybody interested in it. Well, sometimes the kids don't have the, all the other elements to access the opportunities that are available to How many times have we heard about scholarships that went unawarded, right? Sometimes, so opportunities are equally important. Um, and so those are the five things that I think are very important. And so in the role, I always say, what is the role that a layperson can play? Some of it is, is time. Some of it is talent. Some of it is treasure. And that means write a check. And the fourth one is touch. Young people benefit when they can touch people who have been on the other side. But oftentimes there's a big gap. And it's hard for people to do those things because we still got black people in this country going places that not many people in their communities have ever been before. Many of us, when we reach the highest level of success, we look around, we don't see many people who look just like us. And that in itself can be terrifying, exhilarating, and debilitating at the same time. And so what I'm trying to do at OSU and the work that I do, my office is one of the oldest, largest, and most comprehensive of its kind in the United States. The number of students I serve is bigger than some HBCUs in minority-serving institutions. My scholarship program, our scholarship program, nearly 1,500 students we fund, and the university in historic history, and we're talking about the Ohio State University, has only had nine Rhodes Scholars. That's a highly coveted fellowship. We've only had nine Rhodes Scholars in the history of the university. When Cecil Rhodes came out with the Rhodes Scholarship, only white men could get it initially, but they, they revised his, his uh, trust to be more inclusive. And then women and people of color could get the Rhodes Scholarship. That meaning that you can go to Oxford and get your master's degree. Yeah. So two of the last four have come out of my office. They're the first two. And two of the last three of those four um, are people of color. Two of those, those students come out of my office. I just had the first black student in the history of the university to get a Truman Fellowship. These students, four-year, five-year, six-year graduation rates higher than the university average, 80% of them in honors and scholars, and usually over nearly 50% of them made the dean's list. So when you look at our black males this year, we have nearly 50% of all our undergraduate black males 
And we're not counting those schools that only got 10 or 20 or 30. I ain't counting the Ivy Leagues. They don't have enough brothers for me to even count them. Right? <laughs> we have about 1,300 <laughs> brothers on our campus, and nearly 50% of them have a cumulative 3.0 or better. It wasn't like that at first. I worked on it. And first of all, you got to help young people change how they think about excellence. Each and every day in my work and what I try to foster in the office, that, in the work that I do, and my brother knows this about me because he had a chance to observe me all my life, most of his, all his life, I'm older than him, is that I have always embraced continuous improvement. And I've always never accepted what people accept as the status quo. And being a counselor by training, I trained masters and PhD students, is that I understand the power of the mind. And you can convince the mind, even when you got a broken leg, you can convince your leg that it's not broken. But it takes a lot of will. So when you summarize young people, See, what is racism? What is sexism? What is ageism? What is all the ism? You know what the core of what it is? It's rejection. And something that I, I want to honor my mother, she's deceased. And she always would say a couple of things that always resonate. She'd always say, you don't give your children to nobody. I always remember that. And she also said to me, is that um, that uh, great minds come from every zip code. And I believe that, and that's fundamental, right? So many people don't believe that our young people have the capacity to be great. So I make excellent a priority every day. And my goal, along with it, my many teammates at the university is to make Ohio State the premier installation in the world, and I said the world, for talent and diversity. And I think we're poised to do something special that will stand the test of time. But part of it is you got to convince. My, my thing, my work is not about convincing others how good we are. It's convincing the people who have been victimized, shunned, downtrodden, that we have the capacity. The great Marcus Garvey said, I shall teach my people to see the beauty in themselves. The great Dr. That's Benjamin, the, truth. the great Dr. Benjamin E. Mays from 96 South Carolina in the Greenwood area where our grandmother was born and raised. He says, whatever you do, you do it so good that no man dead, alive, or yet to be born can do it better. That's the level of excellence that I hope that everybody will strive for because it is a moral, economic imperative that we continue to extend our arms to the most vulnerable communities in our society. Because in 1983, when the Hudson Institute produced its seminal report. It's called Workforce 2000. That report indicated that the new worker will be women, 
ethnic minorities, and immigrants. September 11 affected this country, and immigrants can't get certain jobs in the same way that we used to. Specialized cybersecurity jobs are top secret jobs that requires government clearance. It changed the way we thought about talent. In order for this country to remain its global edge, it has to invest in communities that are very vulnerable. And, you know, and that is my quest. And that is what it means to be uh, a great civil servant, is trying to right some of the wrongs to ensure that there's a pathway to make sure that there's a future in this country. So when you think about uh, babies and birth rates, people of color are having babies. The public schools are predominantly people of color. And you can't continue to have a society where the majority of the, the majority population as a collective is not performing optimally. Well, man, I got to say this. Um, this is, I, I don't know. I used to say, I don't, I, I'm starting to wonder as great as he is as an education, educator, my brother got a little preacher in him too. My mom would be proud to listen to him right now because he just did a lot of mic drops. Um, this, this, I hope that everyone else got a few chills listening to this. And even though I've been listening to him for so long, if, if you can't hear and feel the passion that he has for educating your kids and, and, and what it takes to, to turn this thing around, I, I don't know what you listen to because the passion is there. Um, this this has been really eye opening for me, and I, and I have these conversations with him on, on the regular. But I hope they meant as much to you all as it has to us. Um, because we went a little long, I'm gonna jump right into a score real quickly because I did not want to stop that because I think it's so important that for the people who are out there listening, whether you're white, you're black, you're gay, you're straight, you're tall, you're short, you're from the south, you're from the north, whatever. It's important that you not only know the plight that faces us as a nation, but you also understand why we're facing it and how it doesn't have to be so. So really quickly, um, Ben, you want to give your score for the film real quickly just so we can keep some um, regularity to it. I want to stay consistent. What's your score for the film? And then we'll do a quick little little outro and, uh, you know, give a few shout outs. So what's your score, Ben? Dude, my score is five. Like, this is to me... I think I probably mentioned this in the past. This is one of those movies that does to me what just, well, it didn't do what just came out from Dr. James Moore on the third. It didn't do that to me, obviously, because he's, he has a whole lot of experience and body of work and all of that. But what this movie does to me is it makes me have all these feelings and questions and thoughts. I told Marcus, like, this movie makes me cry 100% of the time. A hundred percent of the time when I watch this movie, I cry. So I don't know that there's much else to say for me. Um, this is an impeccable movie. It's so human. And um, I mean, if you didn't know who Morgan Freeman was, you don't need to know. You just need to watch this movie. This is an incredible picture, an incredible human story, an incredible community story. And I, I can't recommend it any higher than five because that's our max. So. That's my, that's yeah. my Marcus. 
Yeah. Uh, so, James, I, I don't know if you want to participate in our rating, but typically our guests do. We do from uh, one to five, with five being excellent. Um, hey, you on the show? Let's 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 hear what your thoughts. Like, how would you rate uh, the movie Lean on Me? I, I, you know, like, what, what what did you feel about? It? Like, you can you don't have to give us a whole lot. I just I'm just curious. What would you score it on a one to five for enjoyability and and whatever else that may move you? Oh, you you know me. I, I send into psychoanalyze things. I, I'm very cognitive and and you know. <clears throat> Because I know the setting, um, it's, it's quite painful that um, the schools like that exist in America. Uh, what even what's even more painful? It didn't change the course of the proliferation of such schools in America. Uh, it, you know, movies give us. Uh, a peek, I guess, inside track to some of the apparent realities that people are confronting. Um, I would say that the movie probably didn't capture some of the real painful experiences that young people have to endure on a day-to-day basis. So, uh, but 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 I would say in terms of uh, you know, Hollywood, uh, I would probably give it a four. I'd give it a four. Um, and, and, and some of it is, is you got to think perhaps we didn't have the, the technology like, but it's probably more like, um, the wire than, you know, yeah, we the, a lot of the focus was on the principal as the as the primary character, and been a person who teaches who taught language arts. You know, certainly I love plots, um, but on some levels, it 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 kind of minimized from you know the viewer's perspective what it was like what it's like to be the student. Because the principal was going to be able to get in a nice car and go home. And he had a, a nice home. He had a quality education. And certainly, he was doing an excellent job trying to create a better educational experience for young people. And not only that, he realized that everybody had wrote these kids off. But, but also, I wish we had a sequel if you will, and, and to really look at where are the kids now? Wow. I, I got to tell you, you brought up a point that I have never really thought about because I, I, you know, Morgan Freeman gets such a strong performance that you just get caught up and just, you know, and, and as my brother know and Ben knows this, I am a cinephile to the utmost. I don't know a lot of people who have watched as many movies and as many different genres, like most people like a specific type of movie or it has to be a this type of movie. I can't even tell. I don't even know how many movies I've watched, but I am sure it is probably over a thousand. And I got to say, I've Morgan Freeman has probably been my favorite actor, or at least amongst them for my entire life. 
But I do think that uh, Dr. Moore makes an interesting point. Like, it didn't always focus as much on the strife of the students. Having said that, and still looking at it from an entertainment lens, I completely agree with his his anecdotal about not delving more into that. But from an entertainment point of view, um, and also the time it came out, because it was kind of groundbreaking. You didn't see that kind of movie being made um, really back in the late 80s. I'm going to give it a five just because of the performances and the cinematic you know, um, weight that it carried. But it, you, you haven't seen a lot of movies like that. I would say maybe in the 70s, you had The Warriors. Um, you had in the 90s, Dangerous Mind, where everybody might remember the Coolio song, Gangsta's Paradise. The sad thing is you've had those in the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, and you can still look in the 2020s and still see that there's so many schools that are struggling. Um, before I hand it over to Ben to really just close this out, I just want to like personally thank again my brother for just blessing us with his presence. Um, it's just so nice to be able to have our lives and our careers kind of intersect and be able to do something together and hopefully enlighten um, and educate and entertain folks on this podcast, Culture Score. Um, it's probably one that you all like the most because you heard from Ben and I the least that you've ever heard us uh, heard from us because I think we were just really awestruck with letting people hear and recognize that there's such a problem going on and it is fixable, but it's going to take all of us. So with that being said, Ben, I'm going to give it to you to kind of uh, take us out. And again, um, just thank our guests. And uh, yeah, Ben, the floor is yours. Yeah, so I absolutely want to thank Dr. James L. Moore third for coming over and for really giving us, you know, his time and his knowledge and delivering it in the way that he did. Like Marcus said, um, on a different day, you think that he could also be a preacher, but like I said in the introductions, he's incredibly accomplished and experienced and his track record and what he does. I hope everybody heard it and what he's doing to advance equality in education. The show notes are going to be amazing. I took all the notes. <laughs> Part of the reason I can't walk and chew gum, so I was typing when he was talking. <laughs> so I have his five points. Um, so interest, preparation, experiences, connections, opportunity. I have what a layperson can do, time, talent, money, touch. All that's going to be in the show notes. I actually have core things that he said. The next phase of affirmative action may not be for men. We need school systems that adapt to kids, adapt to kids rather than kids to the school system. And our schools are designed for people who work in them, not for kids. So the show notes are going to be amazing. Um, once more, Dr. James, thank you so much for coming. And, and really to end the show, um, you know, it's, it's, this is a culture score. This is what we do. Um, this is why we created this podcast. And these are the conversations we want to have. We want you to learn. We want you to be informed. We're going to crack jokes because that's what just goofy like that. We want you to be entertained, but we want you to take something away every time you listen to the podcast. Um, our handle, if you want to follow us, Cultures Courses Speak Studio Original. If you want to follow us, you can follow us at speak.studio. That's the platform. So speak.dot. My personal handle is at Tubo B. I've actually updated my Twitter to also have that mark because you should be proud of me. So it's Tubo B. T-U-B-U-O-B-E. That's mine. Marcus, you want to give yours? Everything you want to find me on, it is at the Marcus T. Moore. So whether it's Facebook, the Gram, uh, Twitter, the Marcus T. Moore. 
is that's where you can find me everywhere. And uh, hey, Dr. Moore, you want to give anybody your your handles or how they can find you or see what's going on in your world? Sure, sure. Uh, if they like to take me out, I would say Google me, James L. Moore III. Uh, you can find me very easily. Go to my website, but my Twitter handle is at um, Dr. J L M O O R E third. Okay. All that's right. how you that's how All you right. know well, I, you're somebody when they just Google you and you come yeah, up. That's it. He got too much stuff. And if you find him, he's everywhere from YouTube, he's on everything. Um uh, on, a, on a personal note, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it right back to you, Ben. I just want to say to everybody who's listened this season who have rode with us, um, being really personal here. You guys have no idea how much we've enjoyed doing these and a lot of the personal things that was going on um, through the pandemic. Uh, sometimes this was the thing that kind of kept us going during these really tough times that we dealt with. Uh, ben and I have been talking about doing this for a number of years. Didn't think we were going to do it. I was going to walk away and say, hey, it's not going to happen. Ben would not let me. I went through a nasty bout of COVID, being stayed with me through it, checked on me every day, um, and said, we're going to still do it. And when you need a break, you take a break. I cannot tell you all how much we've enjoyed doing this. And I cannot thank um, my big brother. I cannot thank him enough for being on our final episode of season one. It is our longest. It is hopefully one of the most informative. And I hope that you arrive with us and, and follow us through season two. To my colleague, to my co-producer, my co-host, Ben, as much as I give you a hard time, I can't think of anybody better to ride with this through than you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the support, the pushing, um, understanding my crazy uh, schedule because uh, it is really madness and he never complains and I just appreciate it. So to all the fans out there, all the people listening, thank you. To my brother, thank you for being on our final episode of the season, on our first ever flashback uh, black uh, episode we're doing and to you again Ben thank you for riding through with me on 21 of these bad boys um, I look forward to season 2 absolutely Marcus everything you said right back at you I'll just throw a couple of names um, Tim who was our producer he um, yes yes Tim's in the background he <laughs> he just does his magic Matt Boatwright Stacy Andrea um, this is a good team that's behind us supporting us so we appreciate you guys as well on that note end of season one culture score but next time you hear us we're going to have some new tricks up our sleeves thank you very much and peace wherever you're listening we're out <laughs>